Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, and Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. I will be reading from the NIV version. Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. From, Genesis, or from Exodus 31, 12 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between you and me for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This is the word of the Lord. Last winter... I read somewhere that because schools had gotten so good at doing remote learning, there was the very real possibilities that schools would no longer have snow days. In fact, in South Carolina, apparently that's going to be the case. No more school days. And I thought to myself, that is a terrible idea. So I was heartened when I read this by Paul Drzezinski, principal of a school in Downers Grove, something he sent to the parents of his school. I know some families would like us to use technology and have students do remote assignments on snow days. I believe, however, that snow days, which are generally rare, are times for children to have fun and create lifetime memories. So, if we ever do close, see it as a chance for sledding, hot chocolate, extra sleep, and a special moment with your children. He should be hired in every school district in Illinois. Heidi Stevens, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, agreed, and she wrote this, Snow days aren't like other days off. They're an unexpected gift. They take a run-of-the-mill weekday and infuse it with magic. They remind us that Mother Nature has little use for our Outlook calendars. There's spontaneity in a world of schedules. Now, doesn't that ring true uh, with you? When I was growing up in Philadelphia, I loved snow days. And if a storm was coming, we would watch the TV to see if school was canceled or listen to the radio first thing the next morning. And it was even better when we found out the night before that school was canceled because then we could sleep in. What could be better than a snow day? Well, if you remember that feeling of a snow day, then you already know what the Bible wants you to think and feel about the practice of Sabbath rest. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. 
Rest is a gift of God's grace given to us in the practice of a day of Sabbath each week. Perhaps you know the uh, term FOMO, FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, I wasn't familiar with that term, but I knew its meaning all my life. Fear of missing out. My guess is that every one of us here today has experienced an attack of FOMO at some point in our lives. We have any number of phrases in common use that give voice to this fear. Grab for all the gusto you can get. Seize the day. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Not a particularly happy image, I, I don't think. Bigger and better. That's what life looks like and sounds like when you believe that all success is up to you and you better not leave any stone unturned or give less than 110%. Understand, of course, that in the Bible, work is a good thing. Working hard is a good thing. But to work without rest is sin because it says to God, I know better than you on the one hand, and I don't really trust you to provide for me and my family on the other. So I have to keep at it. I have to keep working. Now this morning, I want to give an overview of the three ways in which the Bible speaks about the practice of Sabbath rest and restoration. For my text, I'm using Exodus 31:17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I love that second part. He rested and was refreshed. Since John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus, the Word, created all things, what we see here in Exodus 31 is that after his six days of labor, Jesus himself needed a day for rest and refreshment. And if Jesus needed rest and refreshment, is it any wonder that we do too? So let's look at the first practice of the Sabbath day. Rest and refreshment to workers one day each week. I think it has to be admitted that it's difficult to read all that the Old Testament has to say about the Sabbath day without feeling that it's a law being pushed onto us that we dare not neglect. But as with so many of the laws in the Bible, Jesus removed the encrustations of centuries of add-ons to the Sabbath commandment that had made the practice of Sabbath day almost impossible to obey. One example. The Qumran community that lived down by the Dead Sea um, had a, uh, a law... Uh, and this was a community of highly observant Orthodox uh, Jews. They had a law that said that the public latrines had to be 1,500 feet away from the town. However, another law said that on the Sabbath, you were only allowed to walk a distance of 1,200 feet. You can see the built-in problem uh, right there. So what did they do? Well, they took uh, rope, and they extended it another 325 feet, counted that as your house so that you could get to the latrines without breaking the Sabbath law. Absurd. In their hearts, they wanted to obey God. They wanted to do the right thing. But 
without Jesus to explain the essence and the true meaning behind these laws, they got themselves all twisted up uh, in knots. Jesus wants to free us of all those kinds of silly things. So how do we keep the motivation right in our own lives while making the practice of the thing joyful, restful, and refreshing? Well, I'll look at this more carefully in a couple of weeks, but let me say here that we will take our cue from Jesus. When Jesus taught, as in the Sermon on the Mount, he showed people what the law was all about, and he gave his own authoritative interpretation to what they already knew uh, in the Old Testament laws. He showed them what was intended, and it's his interpretation that replaces much of what they had learned from the religious leaders of that time. Not all, but a good deal. And with regard to the, day, the practice of a day of Sabbath rest, two things become clear. First, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And second, the Sabbath was made for us and not us for the Sabbath. Now, ordinarily, Jesus and his followers observed the Sabbath in the traditional way. They attended synagogue for worship. They abstained from ordinary work, and we're going to make a distinction between ordinary work and not ordinary work. As Lord of the Sabbath, however, Jesus gives us his authoritative interpretation of what constitutes work that's ordinary. Such work, as we'll see, is not only permissible, but required on the Sabbath. There are six times in the New Testament when Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath. Five of those times are when he heals somebody. And the sixth time is when he fed, he allowed his disciples to pick grain in the field as they were walking through. So healing, nutrition, food, feeding the hungry is not only permitted as work on the Sabbath, it's required that we do those sorts of things out of our love for those people that God has created in his image. That the fact that the practice of a Sabbath day of rest had become a chore is not a reason to ignore this command. Rather, it asks us to do a better job ourselves of working out exactly what a joyful, restful, refreshing Sabbath rest is going to look like. So here's the question. If I was to plan my favorite day of the week, individually, or with my family, if I have one, what would that day look like? Ask yourself that question. If I was to plan a snow day for my family once a week, what would it look like? That's what a day of Sabbath rest should then be like. And it can include all kinds of things. I know some people that just love to cut the grass on Sunday. For me, that would be toilsome work, so I never do it on a Sunday. But for some people, it's just a way of refreshing themselves. It's different from everything else they do during the course of the week. So it's not laws, it's not rules. It's what would the Holy Spirit, speaking to you and to your family, your loved ones, say to you, this is what a snow day will look like for you uh, this week. Secondly, Rest and refreshment for creation, one year in each seven. Now, a point to be made, the day of Sabbath rest was given before sin entered into the world. It was always intended for us. But the Sabbath year and then Jubilee that we're going to look at lastly only became necessary because 
sin entered into the world. And I'll try to explain that as I go along. Now, we read about the Sabbath year in Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, Not a chapter that most of you read often, and I doubt any of you have memorized. Leviticus just has that sound to it that we don't gravitate to it very often in our quiet time. But Leviticus chapter 25 is really fascinating. And in it, uh, the practice of a Sabbath year is described. Basically, it was instituted to make sure that the Israelites were taking care of the land on which their livelihood depended. So the best way to think about Sabbath year is, how do we care for creation? How do we care for the water, the soil, the air? How do we make sure that we take such good care of it that we can pass it on to the next generation, unpolluted and available for all of the things that God intends it for, for growing crops, for water that can be uh, consumed safely, for air that can be breathed without people getting sick. The Sabbath year is intended to remind us that God gave us the great responsibility and privilege of caring for this good earth that uh, he provided during the seven days, uh, six days uh, of creation. One of the things that I, I find most interesting is that a community like this probably understands the necessity of a Sabbath year better than uh, a city community, right? I often describe to people the difference between living here and living, say, in Charlotte, where we moved, was that here people realize that food doesn't come from a grocery store, right? Food comes from land that remains productive because the farmers have taken good care of that land. They have made sure that not only will it produce this year, but it will produce in all of the years uh, to come. We know that it takes work when you grow up in this community. We know that you've got to take care. That is what the Sabbath year teaches us. The care of creation so that it can be handed on. Finally, we look at the year of Jubilee. Rest and refreshment for creation, uh, I'm sorry, for society, one year in each 50 Now, the year of Jubilee may be the least well-known practice of Sabbath for most of us. It's also described, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 25. So you get a twofer if you read that chapter this week. Of the three practices, it's the most aspirational. That is, it describes a way of living that we should strive for because it describes life as it will be in the new heaven and earth. We get to live in some ways now, in the way that we're going to live in heaven. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus wouldn't have taught us to pray that way if it wasn't, in fact, possible to do some things now that we're going to do for all eternity. What we hear, uh, see described in the year of Jubilee is exactly that. Because like the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee wouldn't have been necessary if sin hadn't entered into the world. 
And the reason is that the year of Jubilee describes a world without poverty, without injustice, without haves and have-nots, where neither wealth nor poverty is permanently entrenched. See, the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no poverty. Can you imagine? There will be no racism. Can you imagine? There will be no unequal distribution of the world's resources. Can you imagine? It'll be a place where every tongue, tribe, and nation will live side by side. Nobody enslaved. Nobody consuming more than their, what they need to live. It, it's a world that we want to dream about. It's a world that when we think about it, we think, why not? Why can't we begin to experience that even now? Well, that's what the church gets to be. It gets to be a foretaste of what life is going to be like in the new heaven and the new earth so that the world watching can say, hmm, the God that they worship, the God that they honor by their obedience, if he can do this, even in our broken world, maybe I need to take a closer look at who that God is and what he has done for the likes of me. Well, let me give you an example of what, for example, entrenched poverty looks like. In Charlotte, North Carolina, where I've lived for the last 18 years, a child born into poverty has only a 4% chance of escaping that poverty if he or she remains in Charlotte. Of the 50 cities in America, Charlotte ranked number 50. Yet it's one of the wealthiest cities you can visit. Banking is the major industry, along with all of the subsidiary uh, businesses that support the banking community. Yet if you're born poor in that city, you only have a 4% chance of escaping it. Now, the last time I preached a stewardship sermon uh, at, at that church, uh, Westminster, where I was, I didn't talk about money at all. Now, I'm going to do a stewardship sermon here, and I am going to talk about money. But I didn't talk about money. Instead, I talked about social capital. Now, social capital is the advantages that you have that come because maybe your parents were well-connected. And when you needed a job, they knew the person that they could go to to ask, could you give my child a job? When Colin was a, a senior on his way to college, I, I went to Joe Johnson. I said, Joe, could you give Colin a job this summer framing houses with you? And he said, yes. Now, see, that's social capital. I knew somebody that I could talk to that could give my child a job. Colin didn't have to go out and beat the pavement to, to get a job. I was able to arrange it for him. When I was in high school, my dad knew somebody that worked in the federal government. And he was able to talk to that person about helping me get a job in, in the government during the summer. And I worked six summers in the government, paid for half of my college and seminary education just because my father knew somebody that he could contact. Now, are, are you tracking with me here? Social capital? The ability that you have to invest your relationships in your own children in order to help them get ahead. Those born poor in Charlotte will remain poor because there's nobody in their life that has social capital to invest in them. 
So what I did is I challenged the folks in my church. Do you have social capital? Do you have the ability? You've used it for your own children already, and you should, but can you now take that same social capital? It'll cost you nothing and begin to invest it in somebody else that doesn't have a parent or someone in their life who can do that for them. And you know, several of our small businessmen stepped up and they gave jobs to some of these young men in our community who were born in poverty to give them an opportunity to work their way out of it. The year of Jubilee has that sort of thing as a vision for the Church of Jesus Christ a way to live out its faith in the marketplace, in the world where we live, in order to raise everybody up. Because remember, one day that's going to be true anyway. God's going to do it. But he will make you a blessing to others by helping you to do some of that work even now. Friends, we will never reach all of these goals perfectly. We'll never always have that snow day once a week. We won't always succeed in our care of creation. We won't always succeed in building a world uh, where there is no more poverty, no more injustice. Of course not. It's still a broken world. But when we do our best, listening to God's word, and with the inspiring, creative, imaginative work of the Holy Spirit in you, as you let him bring ideas into your heart and mind and then act on them, the world will see a difference. And they will find it attractive. And they'll want to know, who do you know that you now do this kind of thing, that you live this way. Now, I'm a pastor, and I like to think a theologian. I'm not a conservationist. I'm not an economist. I'm not an educator. But many of you are. So, at least in the church, let's listen to the farmers who know about caring for the land, the air, the water. Let's listen to the conservationists who know about keeping those resources clean and usable. Let's listen to business people and those who know how to invest social capital in young people whose families can't give it to them. And let's aim for the rest and refreshment that the biblical practice of Sabbath envisions for this world that God has entrusted to our care. Remember what Jesus said almost at the very beginning of his ministry in the synagogue? He said, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's quoting from the Jubilee passage in the Old Testament. As followers of Jesus, we get to be that people, that church, which works for the rest and refreshment seen in the practice of Sabbath. We can't do it alone. We need the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, and we need each other. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need each other. If you try to do it by yourself, you'll almost inevitably fail. 
But if this community becomes a Sabbath-practicing community, then we support each other in living out the good news of the gospel. God has given us everything we need to be a Sabbath people, enjoying its rest and its joy. And that good news is good news that the world yearns to hear, yearns to see lived out. And we get to do that. Amen.